wonderful, wonderful worship this morning. This will be our uh, transitional sermon now to our new series. I'm going to finish up our lesson on prayer, and we'll start looking towards Easter Sunday now. Just start thinking about Jerusalem and the cross and the, and the tomb and the Garden of Gethsemane and the upper room. These are all in our future in the next few weeks as we start looking towards Easter. And uh, it's always fitting in Texas as we start thinking about Easter, we get this cold front and uh, we pull all of our winter clothes back out. Might, might even get to do that one more time between now and then, but uh, nonetheless, uh, uh, this morning as we study prayer one more time, I want to take you to Golgotha this morning, Luke 23. If you have you version, you can follow along with me in my notes uh, and use this as a transition to get us thinking about uh, the events that are coming in, in our lives in the next, next few weeks. I want to challenge you what your thoughts are about salvation. Uh, after we finish our Easter series, I uh, uh, have a very extensive travel schedule in the month of May. And uh, I have a, a friend that's struggling for the battle of his life right now with cancer. Uh, my, my, one of my closest friends, pastor in Ohio, and uh, they've called and asked would I come up. Obviously, he's, uh, he can't even, he's in the hospital and the associates carrying the church right now. They've asked would I come up and preach a few weeks for them and help them with the, the preaching load. I promised I would do anything I could do to help them. And so I'm going to go up to Ohio and preach for a few weeks in May. So David will be here preaching. And uh, we're taking a group to Israel also in the month of May. So I'm going to be out quite a lot in the month of May. First week of June, we're launching a church in Romania. And so I'll be in first week of June in Aradia. Uh, I think our attendance last Sunday, we've not advertised to one person We've not published one thing, and I think we had right around 50 people last Sunday morning. We're already planning for our second service to go dual service. We don't even have an official registry of membership, nothing yet, but just wait. It's all about to happen. So just want you to kind of be able to plan for the future. In a week or so, we've got a group from here, men and women, going to Mexico for our first missions trip of the year, going to get ready. Three or four weeks later, a group of women going down to Mexico to do a women's training conference on discipleship down there. So it's about to get busy around here. So uh, this morning, let me challenge some of your thinking. When David comes in May to preach here, uh, he's going to be speaking on the book from, from the, expositorily from the book of Romans. So you're going to cover lots of issues about repentance and works and faith and uh, how we get saved it's going to be a fantastic series. Just wait. I don't, want to, I don't want to steal his thunder, but it's going to be fantastic. We, we've been working together on this. This morning, I'm going to hit just a piece of this. David will give you the deep details in a few weeks on the book of Romans. Let me challenge you this morning. Can a person live a life of sin? Can a person be a terrible person? Live a life of sin and in one moment be convicted of their sin, understand their depravity, understand that their only hope is through Jesus Christ, and in one moment, after a lifetime of wickedness, repent and receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. There is the question. Does a sinner have to join the church in order to be saved? Does a sinner have to be baptized in order to be saved? Does a sinner have to take communion in order to be saved? Does a sinner have to 
have Christian works accompanying their life in order to be saved? These are all the questions that get answered from the book of Romans, which Pastor David will cover in great detail. But at the surface level this morning, when you say, no, they can just believe, it seems so simple. It seems so simple that I want to mix my penance, my good works, with my faith. I want to mix, I feel like I need to do something more than just believe because it is too simple. I want to mix my works with the simplicity of the gospel and together combine those two and say, see, this is a nice little package that I've built. But but let me challenge you this morning. It's not complexity that makes the gospel effective. Matter of fact, the, the gospel does not need to satisfy my complex thinking in order to be powerful. Let me say it in simple language for you Texans. It it doesn't have to be complicated. Who said it had to be complicated? As a matter of fact, to make it equitable, God made it uncomplicated. He made it very simple so that a child could receive the gospel, so that a simple-minded person could believe on Christ. As a matter of fact, if there's any barrier at all, it's to the educated person whose pride and education has filled himself full of self (laughs) pride and he, his, own, his own self becomes a stumbling block, if you would. His own ego becomes a stumbling block. Salvation is re- received freely, simply, just as you would receive a gift. The gift is free to you, but as with all gifts, gifts have to be purchased by someone. And in this context, our salvation was purchased with an astronomically high price of the very life of Jesus Christ himself. Speaking for myself, I received Jesus Christ as a little boy. I was just a child. And I could understand the gospel. Here's what I understood. I understood Jesus was the Son of God who died for my sins, was buried and rose again. In dying on the cross, he was dying in my place. I understood that as a little boy. But I had the benefit of growing up in a home where I was taught that continually. So some of you who are teaching that continually to your children and exposing them to that, it will not be uncommon for them to comprehend it at a very young age. For some who didn't grow up with the benefit of that, you might be 40, 50, or 80 before you comprehend, before it becomes, before it's articulated simply and clearly to you. Does that make sense? It's not, it's not a matter of uh, uh, intelligence. It's a matter of being exposed to the simplicity of the gospel and then faith rising with your hearing of the gospel. I understood who Jesus was and in the simplest childlike way I could, I believed on Christ and I uttered a childlike prayer. I did not have a big vocabulary as a little child, so it was a simple childlike prayer and with a few simple but powerful words, I expressed my faith in Christ. Those words were my expression of my willingness to put my trust and my faith in Christ and repent of my sins. Now, I had little boy sins. I hadn't been knocking off banks, you know what I'm saying, and, 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 and running guns to South America. I just had little boy sins, that's all. But little boy sins and big boy sins are still sins. And I, I understood what my sins were. And whether it was a lying or whatever or whatever, I repented of my sins and put my faith in Christ and I expressed my faith through a prayer. 
a prayer of faith. And those words were my expression. Now, I want to be very careful with what I'm teaching a lesson on prayer this morning and calling upon God. But I want to say this about salvation. We've made a big mistake if we think that the salvation prayer are magic words. You may not have said the exact words I said. Does that that make some sense? You may have said it. It's not about saying it in a... it's, It's not like a book of spells where you've got to word it exactly right. No, we'll learn in just a moment when we get further into Romans. With the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And that prayer is your expression of you putting your faith in Christ. It's not the magic prayer that saves you. It's your belief in Jesus Christ and your response to the gospel that saves you. The prayer is simply your expression of what's happening. Does that make sense? Uh, It's not about uh, the baptism is the same way. It's an expression of what's already happened in your heart. Have you believed on Christ? Yes, I have. Now you're being baptized as an expression of what's already happened happen so i'm asking you this morning but just challenge you a little bit what's your take on salvation can a person live a life of sin and in one heart convicting moment realize that they are heading for an eternity to face the judgment of almighty god and in that moment of conviction call upon jesus christ as lord and ask for forgiveness and repent of their sins and receive salvation is that possible the answer is found in luke 23 of course and i'm going to describe the scene for you and as i describe it you try to paint the picture in your mind uh in a few uh, weeks we'll be taking a very large group almost 50 people uh on a trip to israel uh when we go to israel one of the benefits of going on such a trip is you no longer have to paint the picture in your mind you've stood there you've seen it you've touched it you know the sights, you know the smells, you just have to imagine it back a long time ago, but you still have some context to frame things. I'll show you modern pictures, be much different than it was back then. If we go back 2,000 years to the city of Jerusalem, you're looking at uh, the citadel, uh, the old ruins of uh, Mount Zion, where the fortress of David used to be. Go back to Jerusalem about 2,000 years now, it's spring morning, just Like this, maybe as chilly. We know that Peter, just some hours ago, had been warming himself by the fire. So we know it was quite chilly on that spring night, just as it is here. Jerusalem has almost the same weather as Fort Worth. When it's cold here, it's cold there. It's very, very similar in context. It's a crisp spring morning. So we go down to the street level. There's this long street that runs east to west from the Antonio Fortress across town called the Way of Suffering. It's the name of the street, Suffering Street, Suffering Via Suffering, Via Dolorosa is what they call it. And you walk down the smooth cobblestones of the Via Dolorosa, it goes downhill off of uh, Temple Mount running down into Jerusalem. If you look down and you see the stones stained, It's not from spilled paint. This is the way the executioner and the condemned walk down from the Antonio Fortress to the place of execution. There's an execution spot just outside the city gate 
and the criminals go this way. Walk down the Via Dolorosa and it intersects with a north-south road, the Damascus Street. We'll just turn right on Damascus Street now and right in front of us will be the Damascus Gate. This is from outside Jerusalem looking into the city. We'll be walking this way, out this, the gate coming towards you. As we walk out this gate, the Damascus Gate, standing right in front of us is the hill you call Calvary. It's not much of a hill. 2,000 years of time, destroyed cities and rebuilt cities. It's just kind of a, it's a, barely a hill now, just, just a little rise there. Uh, they call it Golgotha. They, the, the term means skull mountain, the place of the skull. When you see it, you understand why they call it the place of the skull. 2,000 years worth of erosion is really changing the shape uh, of the mountain. A lot of it, the bridge of the nose keeps eroding away. And erod- but you understand. You can see clearly. This, is, uh, this looming skull face is sitting, uh, you know, Skeletor Mountain sitting right outside the Damascus Gate here. And so it's a natural execution place. They're going to march the criminals out to, to Skull Mountain, and there they're going to execute them. If you had gone on this spring morning, you would have seen three crosses there on Skull Hill, or maybe not on top. The Bible's not clear on this. Many people think they're down here at the bottom of Skull Hill. And the skull face is the backdrop. Can you imagine that? Nobody's really done that movie yet where the three crosses are here and the skull is looming in the background. What a dreadful, dreary execution spot. On those three crosses, you would have seen three men silhouetted against the spring sunrise. On the left, there's a thief nailed to a cross. On the right, there's a thief on the cross. And in the middle right there would be the very Son of God himself. Now imagine you're there on assignment and you're going to record for posterity the events that are happening and you've got your iPhone out and your video cameras running and you're listening to the sounds as they have conversations. The crowd is mocking, the soldiers are gambling, somebody's speaking, this thief says something, that thief says something, Jesus speaking several times from the cross, and you're recording what's being said, you're filming what's being said, and you're zooming in on Jesus as his life is beginning to slip away. Several times he'll speak, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Woman, behold thy son. I, I mean, he speaks from the cross many times. All of it's being recorded. And then suddenly, the, one of the thieves in particular begins to try to have a conversation with Jesus. We turn and focus on him for just a moment. They've been hanging there for hours by now. Their bodies are dehydrated. Uh, The sun is beating down, their tongues are swollen, their throats are constricting. I would imagine they're speaking in hoarse whispers because of the dehydration. Uh, Because of the wounds on their bodies, the blood is steadily in little droplets. Bouncing on the stones beneath them. The flies are coming now and biting their flesh. Swarms of flies are in their eyes and in the wounds and drinking their blood. And now the thief leans over and says to Jesus, Lord, 
Jesus, remember me. And in that moment, Jesus turns his head and says to the thief, Today, today, you will be with me in paradise. Now here's the question for us this morning. Do you believe the thief was saved as he hung on that cross next to Jesus Christ? Now before you answer, theologians dispute everything and no theologian disputes this. I have not found one yet that disputed the fact that the thief went to paradise with Jesus later that day. I've never found a theologian dispute it. And they dispute everything, trust me. So do you believe that this bad man hanging there saying, Lord, remember me, got saved on the cross? No one disputes it, so let's say yes. Then the question becomes simply this. How did he find forgiveness? How was he saved hanging on that cross? Well, the Bible answer is that he got saved because he put his trust in Jesus Christ. He put his faith in Jesus Christ and he trusted Jesus as his Lord and trusted Jesus as his Savior. Now, the question is, what convinced him? What convinced him in those moments as they were being executed together that Jesus was the one he needed to call upon for salvation? He called upon Jesus because obviously he had put his trust, his faith in him. He believed something about Jesus. That's why he called upon him. We do not know because the scripture does not tell us. We do not know the man's name. We do not know his family. We do not know the city of his birth. And we do not know, most importantly, where he got his theology. The Bible doesn't tell us where the thief got his theology. But we have to suppose a few things. I don't know if maybe, listen, maybe he was taught in the synagogue as a little boy. Maybe his parents brought him to Sunday school. Maybe he sat in children's church. I I don't know. But he he understood something. He was a thief. I don't know. Maybe when these big crowds assembled, maybe when Jesus was up preaching the Sermon on the Mount, the thief was lifting wallets from the crowd and borrowing watches from people. I don't know. But maybe he heard some of the gospel message you know, at a distance, as, as, as Christ was ministering to the multitudes, I don't know. I don't know, but maybe like many of us here in the room this morning, maybe, maybe he had a father or a mother who was devout, and maybe he learned some, something about God from his mother or his father in the home, which is why we at Cornerstone are constantly saying to you, we're here to support you in the home. We're here to be your partner. The home is the number one place for evangelism. It's the number one place for discipleship. Maybe mom and dad shared some bits of theology, some bits of truth around the kitchen table as they had Tuesday taco night in the home. Maybe they had some faith talk at the table. And although the, the boy rebelled later, Some of those things were in there. And just like some of our children, although they might rebel, never never forget that some of those faith talks are still in here. And God's going to use that to speak to them, even when you're not there to speak to them. The Holy Spirit will use the seed that that you've planted. Certainly, the thief had listened carefully as they carried their crosses together down the Via Della Rosa, 
And some people were taunting Christ, but Christ was loving them. And he, people were weeping, and he said, don't weep, daughters of Jerusalem, for me. And he's ministering to people while he's carrying the cross. He's loving people and praying for while he's carrying the cross to the place of his execution. Just fathom that for a moment. After having been tortured all night, after being ripped to shreds by Roman soldiers and their whips, now wearing a crown of thorns and carrying a cross, he's ministering to people as he walks to the Skull Mountain. Well, that would make an impression on you, wouldn't it? That this was a different kind of man. And as they laid Jesus down and stretched his arms on the cross and drove the nails, and he says, Father, forgive them. That's a different kind different kind of execution, that's for sure. Those aren't words you hear at an execution. A man praying for the one who just drove nails through his wrists. No, that's, that's, not, that's quite highly unusual. Maybe the thief had taken all of that in. People are mocking Jesus' blessing. Maybe the thief is saying, wow, this guy's legit. This it, I know who he is. I've heard about him. I heard a sermon he preached once. I saw some people who claim he did a miracle for them once. I was skeptical, but you know what? Seeing what I'm seeing, conviction is coming and faith is rising in my own heart. And I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't know specifically what triggered his faith. But what I do know is that he put his trust in Jesus Christ and he was saved. And I know this because Jesus turning to him said today. I'll see you in a few hours in paradise. I'll see you in the afterlife in a few hours. Let me take you right to the text now. Luke chapter 23 verse 39. He deserved punishment. None of us can dispute that this morning. We don't know his name, we just know he's the thief on the cross. Does that make sense? The thief on the cross. We don't don't know his name. The thief on the cross. Who is he? The thief. The one that got saved. That's the one. Now, here's what we know about him. He deserved punishment. Not because I say so, but because he said so. Let me read you the verse. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus, saying... Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. One of the thieves is taunting Jesus. If you're the Son of God, it's the same thing the Pharisees are saying. If you're the Son of God, come down off the cross and save yourself. The thief over here says, yeah, yeah, if you're the Son of God, save us all. Get me off this cross too. If you really are legit, save me. Verse 40. But the other thief rebuked him, the first thief, saying... Do you not fear God, seeing you under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, it's right that we're being punished, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds, but this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. I want you to notice by his own confession, the thief did not deny his sinfulness, Instead, he openly admitted that he was being punished for his crimes, for the sins he had committed. Now, that's a big step. I don't want to minimize this. This is a big deal. It's a big step for a man, a woman, a teenager, a child. It's a big step to confess and say, I am a sinner. I 
deserve judgment. It's a big step for him and it's a big step for us because no one is ready to get saved until you can confess that you're a sinner facing the judgment of God. In other words, good, good people full of self-righteousness don't get saved. They go out into eternity lost, holding on to their self-righteousness. I did all of these good works and I'm just going to hold on to that. that, that that's like an anchor that will pull you right to hell is what that is. A person's ready to be saved when they're ready to say, I am a sinner, I am facing God's judgment, I deserve hell. Only sinners seek a Savior. Only people who realize they can't save themselves ask for outside intervention is what I'm saying. And so the, the, uh, Mark chapter 2, Jesus talked about this. He, he made this statement, those who are well have no need of a physician. Only those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said, sinners are the people I came for. Uh, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was a loss. I'm looking for sinners who understand their sinners and understand their crossways with God and facing the judgment of God. That man, that woman, that teenager, that child is in a place where they're ready to be saved and I can save them if they can comprehend that they are sinners. When Pastor David preaches from the book of Romans, he's going to talk a lot about this with you and make it so understandable and so fun and so simple that, that you, you can just understand it and articulate it. But over and over in the book of Romans, for example, chapter 3 says this, For there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Again, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Again, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The thief said, Man, shut your mouth. We're suffering because of the crimes we committed. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. You should be quiet. We're all going to face death in just a few hours. And, and if you're in the same condemnation, man, you shouldn't be taunting the Creator of the universe. You shouldn't be taunting the Son of God. Why would someone do that? Well, it happens even in our own society. Uh, our own community is filled with egomaniacs who are strutting their way to hell strutting their way out to face God's judgment, thinking that salvation is for the drug addict and for the prostitute and for the thief, never thinking that the gospel is for a college-educated, white-collar worker. Is everybody tracking with me? And so in your own ego, I mean, I've never killed anybody. I mean, I've never done, you know, really bad things. Just little, you know, little white lies and little, little things maybe, but nothing major. Egomaniacs are going to strut their way all the way to hell, thinking that the gospel was for somebody else more wicked than themselves. But the truth of Scripture is this, the gospel is for all of us. And when I say us, I mean us, the people in this room. The gospel is for all of us because we are all sinners. And sometimes when we read a story like this, we say, well, I can't really relate to this guy. Pastor, that guy's a thief. I'm not a thief. Well, let's just talk about that for a moment. Because if you're not serving God with your life, if you're not on the mission of Jesus Christ, if you're not acknowledging Him as Lord of your life, you are a thief. You see, God is our landlord according to Scripture and according to the parables that Jesus taught. Uh, if you're breathing God's air and drinking God's water... 
are you with me? If you're, if you're living on God's planet that He made, and you're enjoying the beautiful spring flowers and the beautiful spring breeze, and you're enjoying the beauty of God's creation, and, and, and the, the psalmist said it this way in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein, the world and all those who live in it, who dwell in it. So what the psalmist said is you belong to the Lord, this planet belongs to the Lord, the air belongs to the Lord, the water belongs to the Lord. And when you live your life without submitting yourself to the Lord and acknowledging the Lord and living your life on his mission, you essentially are a thief. You're stealing a life and you're you're squatting essentially on God's property. Paul wrote to Timothy... This is a trustworthy saying and deserving of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save, help me out here, Jesus came to save who? And Paul said, I am the foremost. The old KJV says, of whom I am the chief. I'm the captain of sinners. I'm the king of sinners, Paul said. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Please hear what I'm saying. He doesn't save any other kind of people. No one gets saved except for sinners. Self-righteous people don't get saved. That's the scribes and the Pharisees. They don't get saved because they're too good in their own hearts to call themselves sinners. Paul said Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. But here's the Bible's good news for sinners Romans 5, 8, God showed His love for us. God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ died for sinners. There's one hanging right there next to Him on the cross. What a, what a powerful testimony to Romans 5, 8 and the truth of what Paul wrote that there's a sinner hanging next to Jesus. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, not just Peter, James, and John, not just you and I, but the thief hanging on the cross next to him is a sinner. You say, how do you know? The thief said so. We're getting what we deserve. We are sinners. Quit mocking Jesus. We deserve our punishment. I'm a sinner, and I'm confessing it openly. Christ died for sinners. Let me put this up on the screen. It's great to remember this. Christ died for us. Say this with me. Christ died. One more time. Christ died. Christ died for us. Now, when we think of ourselves, we think of ourselves as born again, disciples of Christ. But what I'm saying is Christ died for us when we were sinners. When we didn't deserve it. When we were wicked, Christ died died for us now the thief deserved punishment but he received mercy this is very important he deserved punishment we all agree it's the thief's own words he said i deserve what i'm getting he deserved punishment now he's the romans aren't going to take him off the cross he's not getting mercy from the romans nor from the jews but he did receive mercy hanging on the cross but he received it from Jesus Christ. Let me read Luke 23, 42. And he said, the thief said to Jesus, Lord, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to the thief, truly, I say to you, 
today you will be with me in paradise. Now, here's the question. How does the thief get saved? You're seeing it right now. He acknowledges he's a sinner. He says, Jesus, save me. Jesus, remember me. Jesus, take note of me. I'm a sinner and I need your mercy. Verse 41, notice what he says. We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, the thief speaking about Jesus, Jesus has done nothing wrong. Now it's important, it's a part of our theological understanding to know the sinlessness of Christ. He never committed one sin. He's dying as a criminal, being executed as a sinner, but never did one sin. The Bible is very clear on this. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 4 tells us in verse 15, For we do not have a high priest which is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. For He was, in every respect, tempted as we are. Comma. Yet, without sin. The sinlessness of Christ is the theological standard for the New Testament. You say, well, he wasn't exposed to the life we were. Yes, he was. In every way, he was tempted the ways that we are tempted, yet without sin. Matter of fact, Jesus asked his enemies one afternoon something you and I would never say. Jesus, standing before his enemies, said, which of you convicts me of sin? If there's a flaw in my life, if there's a sin in my life, I now open the microphone for you to point it out. Would any of you dare do that? (laughs) No way, because there'd be plenty to point out. But Jesus said, "Who, who can convict me? Who can convince me of sin? They're hanging on the cross. This is what's amazing. Hanging on the cross, beaten, crown of thorns, ripped face, plucked beard, nailed hands and feet, dying in agony, being spit on, being mocked, hanging on the cross. It was in that context which the thief called him Lord. It was in the context of crucifixion, execution, and humiliation with the spittle coming off of his body from the crown. The thief looked over at him and called him Lord. Called him Savior. Lord, save me. In that context, that's what's amazing to me. Listen, when you see Jesus sitting on the throne of the universe, high and lifted up, and surrounded by beings crying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, and the ground shakes and the choir sings, it'll be easy to believe Jesus then. Do you understand what I'm saying? It'll be easy to call on Him as Lord. Matter of fact, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow when they see him high and lifted up. But what I'm saying to you is he's stripped and beaten and bleeding and vulnerable and hurting. And in that context, the thief called upon Jesus Christ as his Lord. What kingdom did he have? His kingdom was about to be the confines of a dark and cold tomb. What crown did Jesus have in that moment but a crown of thorns? What scepter did Jesus hold in his hand in that moment but a bloody spike nailed into a rough wooden beam? What honor did Christ have hanging on the cross? They're mocking him and spitting in his face. 
You see, Peter called Jesus Lord when they pulled up the miracle of the fish. Thomas called Jesus Lord when he could see the holes in his hands and and touch the hole in his side of the resurrected Christ. But the thief called Jesus Lord when it didn't look very promising. The thief called Him Lord when it would have been harder for some people to believe that He was the Son of God. The thief called Him Lord as He hung on the cross. And I might argue this morning, the thief had greater faith than a lot of people had. It would have taken a lot of faith to look at Jesus in that moment and said, Man, after hearing what I've heard and see what I've seen, I do believe You are the saving, sinless Son of God. And He said, Lord, remember me. Jesus, remember me. Let me take you now to this great treatise in Romans. Romans chapter number 10 and let's look together. But what does the scripture say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we proclaim. Verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will Be saved. Watch the words now. For with the heart one believes and is justified. Belief happens in here somewhere. In here somewhere. Belief happens on the inside. With the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. I'm sure some people as the thief's calling upon Jesus for salvation in such a public venue. I'm sure there were people who mocked and laughed all the way through his cry for salvation. Ha! Look at that crazy guy calling upon another crazy guy. Does he look like a king? Does he look like a savior? You're a fool to put your faith in Christ. Jesus says, don't even listen to him. Today you'll be with me in paradise. For with the heart one believes, and with the mouth someone confesses. And everyone who... Oh, sorry, there you go. And is saved. Go ahead to the next. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Imagine Jesus saying to him, don't listen to him. You'll have the last laugh. You'll not be put to shame. I know we're hanging in open shame being executed now, but there's glory coming for us. You'll not... Have eternal shame. Go to verse number 12. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't ask about the shape of your eye or the color of your hair or your SAT score or what country you were born in or what color your skin is or how much money your parents made? Instead, he says, level playing field at the foot of the cross this morning. For there is no difference between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Verse 13 is a very famous verse. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. What's his name? What's his name? We talked about names last week. Remember that message? Some of you probably filed for paperwork in Austin to change your name after that sermon, but... Uh, the Lord has a name. You can call him Lord because there is only one of them. You can call him Father. Jesus taught us to pray that way. You can call him God because there's only one. You could call him Adonai or Jehovah or Yahweh. But in the New Testament, 
he has a name because he was born in Bethlehem and it's in the registry and it's in the history books and it's recorded through the whole New Testament. His name is Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus in English. His name is Jesus. For whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord, the thief looks over and says, Jesus, that's his name. That's his name. Remember me. Now, you may have prayed a different sinner's prayer when you received Jesus Christ as your Savior. You may have been led in a prayer by someone who was theologically trained. And that's awesome. And they taught you how to pray and call upon Jesus Christ. But it wasn't the magic words of the prayer. For whosoever believes in their heart then confesses with their mouth. The words may come out a little different. But I trust you when you get to the other side and you enter into the everlasting kingdom, you can meet this man we're talking about, the thief on the cross, and you'll eventually know his name. And you'll get to meet this man. And when you meet him, you can say, hey, I read about your salvation in very crazy circumstances while you were being executed. And I read about your, your faith and how you articulated your prayer. And he may blush a little bit and say, I didn't have a very good prayer, did I? He might be a little bashful and say, I didn't have a very articulate prayer, did I? No, but when somebody's driving spikes through your hands and breaking your legs, and it, you understand, it's a little hard to get theologically correct with a profound articulate prayer. You might do like David and Nehemiah and the old guys did. In the old, you might just cry, Lord, help me. Lord, save me. God, save me. You, you might get real brief and to the point is what I'm saying. And in harsh, harsh circumstances, the thief called upon Jesus Christ for every one who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now I want you to know the calling part is just the expression of what's happening in your heart. It's the belief. The words are just the expression of your belief. And your words might be slightly different than my words, but the point is we're putting our trust transferring it from saving ourselves to transferring it to Jesus Christ who alone can save us and acknowledging that we are sinners. The thief did these fundamental requirements for his salvation. I'm getting what I am a sinner. Jesus, save me. Listen, as you see Jesus on, on the cross, a lot of people when you see that scene, and I'm sure the enemies who were watching Jesus heard those words, I mean, the thief, it, it, it's so, gosh, I don't even know the right word, sweet. It, it's almost tender. Lord, remember me. I mean, in the midst of this brutality of execution, it's almost tender. Lord, remember me. And the reply, today. Sir, today, you will be with me in paradise. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Knowledge is a sinner. Knowledge is Jesus is the Savior. He even acknowledged something else, kind of snuck in that prayer. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He has a kingdom. And he is the king of that kingdom. I acknowledge you as king. When you get to your kingdom, would you remember a lowly sinner like me. 
the prayer is so, I mean, I don't even know if these are the right words to use, but it, it feels to me it's so sweet. It, it's a tender prayer. It's almost like the thief in those moments before death is saying, Lord, don't let me go. Jesus, hold me in your hand as I go through the valley of the shadow of death right now. In a few minutes, we're going to close our eyes in death. And I just want to know that you're going to walk with me through this transition I'm about to make. I don't know if you've ever stood by a hospital bed while one of your loved ones or a friend or a disciple has passed off into eternity. But at times, it can be kind of a sweet moment where somebody just says, Take my hand and in a few moments they step from this life and out of the body and out into eternity ushered into the everlasting kingdom. I could tell you story after story after story if the clock were my friend about what life is like standing by hospital beds and watching people go out into eternity. And there's story after story that are so unusual that we've happened in our own, in our own ministry and in our own personal lives. The Bible says you are ushered abundantly into the everlasting kingdom. You know what an usher implies? Somebody make a picture in your mind right now. What does an usher imply? That someone's taking you by the arm or taking you by the hand. That's what it implies. The scripture says we are ushered abundantly into the everlasting kingdom. You know what abundantly implies? With pomp and circumstance. With... with abundantly not just sneaking in through the back door surprise i've been here for a few days and nobody knew it but like a grand entrance where the debutante comes down the stairway is what i'm saying or someone walks through the red down the red carpet through the eastern gate or something that's what i'm saying we're ushered abundantly into the everlasting kingdom gosh when when my grandmother was about to die i remember mom went up to the she just not long for this earth mom walks into the hospital room and and to my grandmother says to, to, to my mom, hey, why are, you, why are you standing in front of those guys? And mom's like, what guys? And my grandmother's like, those two young men, you, why did you stand right in front of them? Don't be rude. And mom's like, oh, okay, here, I'll just move over here. Okay, that's better. Of course, mom's pretty sharp. She'd been around a day or two. Mom said, do you know who those young men are? There's nobody in the room. You can't see anybody. My mom says to my grandmother, do you know who those two young men are? She said, yeah, they're here to get me. You going somewhere? Yep. And you think in those moments, well, they're just delirious. You know, it's the morphine, it's the whatever. No, don't you believe it for a minute. God had already dispatched the escort. In just a few hours, she'd be taking her journey. That's how simple it is. It's almost sweet to me as I read this exchange in the scripture. Jesus, remember me when you come to you. Bud, I'm going to see you in a few hours. We're going to be walking together through the streets of paradise. Just your faith is noted. Your sins are, yeah, we're, we're just I'll see you in a little bit on the other side. And I'll walk with you the whole way. How sweet to die right there with Jesus Christ. You know, when the people saw Jesus hanging on the cross, they saw someone they thought was helpless. They saw a broken and helpless man with his back ripped off and his scalp ripped up 
with black eyes and a bloody nose and split lips and pierced hands and feet and a body that had been destroyed by the executioners. They saw a broken and helpless man. Let me clarify for you as we head to Easter. Jesus was not helpless. He was just hurting. And there's a difference between being helpless and hurting. He was in extreme pain, suffering, agony. It doesn't mean he was helpless. Let me give you some focus on this. In Matthew 26, verse 53, Jesus told his peers, Do you not think that I can call right now 12 legions of angels and my Father will at once dispatch them to me? Listen, a legion is 6,000 in the Roman legion, 6,000 men. Jesus said, I can call 12 legions of angels, more than 12 legions of angels. That'd be 72,000 of them. Here's what you want to take note of. In the Old Testament, one angel went through the camp of the Assyrians one night, killed 185,000 men. One angel in one night killed 185,000 men. You want me to clarify the prayer of Jesus? Don't think I'm helpless. I could call down enough firepower right now to eradicate 13 billion people in the blink of an eye. 13 billions bigger than the population of the earth, by the way. He said in one prayer, my father would dispatch enough firepower to unleash hell on my enemies. Did he do it? Nope. He was hurting But he wasn't helpless. The point that I'm trying to make this morning is it was not nails that held Jesus to the cross. They don't make a nail big enough to hold the Son of God to a cross. It was God's love for sinners that held him to the cross. And when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he had us in mind because Christ Jesus came into the world to save Christ Jesus came in the world to save. Paul said, of whom I am chief. And this morning I say, amen. Amen and amen. Jesus came to save sinners. So let me ask you a question in closing. How was the thief saved? He wasn't saved by doing good works because his hands are nailed to a cross. He can't do any good works and he had never done any good works. He'd only done bad works. How was he saved? By his charity? Cut some good checks to Salvation Army and United Way. And, and No, no, no. He never did any works of charity. He had no money to give. How was he saved? By his baptism. He never, ever got baptized in his lifetime, even after his salvation. Now, if you get saved, you should be baptized. That's Christ's model. But you understand the circumstances didn't allow for it. And if your circumstances don't allow for it, it will not prevent you from going to heaven. He never got baptized. It's important, but he never got baptized. He was saved because he put his trust in Jesus Christ and said, Lord, save me. Lord, remember me. And in that moment, he received as a free gift from Jesus Christ something more valuable than everything he had ever stolen combined in his entire lifetime. Now, I have to put this out there because I understand the way we all think. Pastor, if I get on my deathbed then, is it possible for me to pray and at the last moment receive Christ as my... I'm just live like the devil and I'm going to wait right until that moment before I die. And I'm going to say, Lord, save me. Is that possible for me? 
Well, since you're plotting it, probably not, is what I'm going to say. Probably not. Who knows, you might get blindsided on the freeway, you know, and you won't have time for that. It's possible, yes, but it's not probable. Most people get saved when they're young. Praise God, they have a whole lifetime to give to Jesus Christ on mission. Very few people, but some, get saved when they're old. Had a wonderful lady, 81 years old, got saved last week. How wonderful, how wonderful she got saved. But here's what I want you to know. The Bible only records one deathbed repentance like this. One, so every man might have hope, but only one, so none of us would presume to put it off until tomorrow. Jesus said to the thief these words, Today, you will be with me in paradise. I want you to know today is God's word. Tomorrow is Satan's word. The Bible says take no thought to tomorrow. Don't, don't, get to, don't get ahead of yourself. Today is the day of salvation. I read a story many years ago about a chaplain attending to the wounded on a battlefield. It was a fierce battle, and the chaplain was very experienced. He'd been in battle for a long time. And as he went out to the battlefield, he found one young soldier mortally wounded, just mortally shot up. He knelt down by the young man and cradled the young man's head. The chaplain was so experienced, he knew it was only be a few minutes, and the soldier would bleed out on the battlefield. He knelt down by the, the young man, and he cradled his head. And the young man looked up and said, Chaplain... He said, sir, am I going to live? How do you answer that question? (laughs) The chaplain was so compassionate. He said to the young men, have you ever received Christ as your Savior? As the man's breathing became labored, he said to the chaplain, yes, I have. He said, as a matter of fact, when I was a young man... In a church service, I gave my heart to Jesus Christ. And at the end of that service, I walked forward and gave my hand to the pastor and confessed that I had received Christ. Yes, yes, sir, I know that I'm saved. Chaplain laid his head down on the ground in a few breaths. The man would be gone. The chaplain whispered into his ear, then, yes, son, you're going to live. He that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. It's a powerful lesson on prayer. It's not the magic words that save you. It is the belief in your heart. The words are just the confession of what's happened in your heart. Christian, take this opportunity to ask Jesus Christ what's his next step for you you've got this salvation thing taken care of you've called on Jesus have you been baptized if not schedule it today have you been uh, to starting point have you made a commitment to be a member of the church if not slip out of your seat and in this invitation take someone's hand and say I'm on board I want to join the team sign me up I'm in this is my commitment Sunday If you've never received Christ as your Savior, this is your powerful prayer moment right now. 
Faith is rising in your heart. You believe Jesus is the Son of God. You know that you're a sinner. You're going to face God's judgment without the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You're ready. Only sinners get saved. Only sinners get saved. If you're willing to acknowledge that this morning, it's not an insult. Everybody in the room's the same. The, the, the ground is all level here before the cross of Jesus Christ. Are you ready to make your prayer this morning and make your confession this morning and say to Jesus, Lord, save me? If you're ready, then this is your moment. Don't be tempted to say tomorrow, next week, later. Wait, wait till I get some things cleaned up. Wait till I get my life right. You'll never get your life right until you call upon Jesus Christ and let the Holy Spirit come in. He'll help you do all of that. Instead, this morning, call upon Jesus Christ and ask Him to save you right here, right now. The prayer is just your expression of what's happening in your heart. When the belief happens in your heart, and by now it surely has, you're ready to say something about it. If you're ready to receive Christ, I want you to pray with me like this. And let's make our confession to Christ now. Father, we bow before you this morning. God, I confess to you that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And I know that there is no other than Jesus Christ. So this morning, I ask you to forgive me of my sins as I call upon you, Jesus, to be my Lord and Savior. I believe in my heart that you are the Son of God who died on the cross. I believe you were dying there in my place to take my punishment. I believe you were buried and rose again with power to be my living Savior. This morning I put my trust in you. I ask you to forgive me of my sins and I accept your forgiveness. Thank you for nailing my sins to your cross. For paying my penalty. Now, Lord, I'm going to turn my back on my old lifestyle and I'm going to live for you. I want you to write my name in the book of life and adopt me into the family of God this morning. Thank you for loving me and thank you for saving me today. In Jesus' name, amen.